Appreciate you all for listening. Just wanted to give you a heads up that we had some video and audio challenges in these recordings. Give us a little grace. We're going to get it right for you, but hang in there. There's still some quality information and inspiring information for you to move closer into your financial flow. Thanks. We love the power and grace of athletes, artists, CEOs, and high achievers with their zest and grit. But have you ever wondered how they cut through all the distractions, harness their energy, and get them to flow to achieve their goals? And what do they do with the money that comes their way? I'm Darren Wright, author of Peak Financial Fitness. Join me on a fascinating journey to gain a peek into the intersection of high-performing people and everyday financial life. There will be highs and lows and inspiring stories for you to achieve your goals. All right. Well, welcome, everybody, and thanks for tuning in. Uh, I've got my good buddy, Bryce Scala, here. Welcome, my man. Darren, always a pleasure, sir. Great to see you. Yeah, great to see you, too. Thank you for coming so much. Uh, so I've known Bryce uh, uh, quite a while now, but he is a 20-year entrepreneurial veteran with a background in psychology, uh, therapeutic psychedelics, brand development, and revenue generation. He's been involved in brand creation for over 100 companies across an array of industries, ranging from CPG and fashion to wellness and professional services. Most recently, he founded Item 9 Labs, Corp OTCQX, INLB as CEO, with a focus on quality, transparency, and fun, which we all love. He led the charge in taking the company from a privately owned cannabis enterprise based in Arizona to over-the-counter QX publicly traded corporation operating in multiple states with a market value of 350 mil. <clears throat> Currently, Bryce has created Hojo Distruo, focusing on premium plant medicine products throughout the southwestern United States. That's quite a lot of shit going on, Bryce. Okay, so, wait, and at credit due, you said Hojo, correct? It's, it's normally a third or fourth time someone gets it, so I just want to give credit where it's due. Well, well, you know, thank you. I got a little coaching on the front end. <laughs> so um, that's that's pretty amazing. Um, so tell me, let's back up a little bit, though. Tell me a little bit about your story and how you got started. Okay. Um, I, uh, I grew up in Encinitas, California. Um, lived out there for uh, most of my formative years. Moved to Arizona uh, in teen years, tumultuous teen years, and moved around a lot. Um, growing up in Encinitas, um, it was a very spiritual community. Uh, and there was, you know, we had the New Realization Fellowship there. Uh, you know, uh, Deepak Chopra did a lot of speeches and stuff out of my area. And so I, I, there was a lot of spirituality and awareness when I was young. But I also picked up all the baggage that we pick up in our, you know, teen years. Uh, what I had was a stepfather who was an entrepreneur himself, who was also a cheapskate. And so uh, from a very early age, we didn't get allowance in my house. If you wanted money, you worked for it. As much as it was rough when I was a kid, I'm so grateful for those lessons now because I've either owned a company um, or had a side business of some sort since I was 12. Never not had a side business. It's always been my thing. It was distributing plant medicines before they were legal for a long time, uh, but now they're legal. That past experience has helped me, but um, it also you know, taught me that there was always a way. You know, If you wanted to get something done, there was always a way. Um, I had a I decided to see what was possible in the trouble realm uh, through most of my 20s. Um, and I, through that experience um, and, and coming out of that experience, I, I wanted I knew that I wanted to 
do something that would help others. And so I ended up, uh, I went to school initially for education and for uh, music and ended up uh, getting a degree in psychology. Psychology ended up kind of being my main state. I did that for about 10 years before kind of deciding to go full tilt entrepreneur. Any specific reason why you found your way into psychology? Yeah, I, you know, I think, uh, you know, my experience with psychologists and counselors is that, you you know, normally when you meet them, it's because things weren't easy, you know, and I had a lot of uh, childhood traumas um, with, uh, you know, I family members uh, with suicide attempts and it was a lot of uh, drug and alcohol use and abuse in my, um, just throughout my entire family, not, not all just in my direct childhood, but just kind of throughout the family. And I, and I think that um, I saw an opportunity to let people know there was a different way. I think that was the hard thing is I think when you're in that dark hole, sometimes you don't think there's a light out there. And um, once I kind of found the light, it was just important to me to other people. You know, when I, when I was young and doing bad things, I had a big heart. And so it was a liability from a large portion of my you know younger years. The older I got, it, I realized that that big heart meant I didn't give up on people as quick as some other people did. And that that was a superpower. And if I used it for good, then it was going to be a huge benefit. Otherwise, it was not. And so I, I just figured that was the best way to do it. And I love, I mean, social work. Like there's counselors and psychologists and social workers are like, a, a, a you know, and I separate myself from that group because I don't do it anymore. But it's a very uh, noble profession. When I when they told me to go back to school for my master's and spend 60 grand on making an extra $2 an hour, the numbers didn't add up for me, um, you know. But what I really saw was that there was a, a way to be of service in other places and that I didn't have to meet everyone on the worst day of their life because that's really what it was. It was a decade of helping a lot of people and have kind of amazing stories and, and have, you know, really beautiful, um, you know, blessings where I've seen people that I didn't think were going to make it, make it, that are successful now, you know, doing great things. Um, but it was also meeting everyone on the worst day of their life. And like, you can only, you know, emotionally take that so long before you need a break, you know, around. Yeah. And, you know, and I also realized that there was a lot of people that, um, that needed to help in other ways. You know, I, you know, that I employed a lot of people that didn't have the opportunity to regular job unless they met someone like me who was like, oh, give me a chance, man. And so to me, that has been as impactful as some of the other people that maybe I helped get off drugs and alcohol or stabilized on their psych medications. You know, they were all, it's to watch a family flourish because of somebody's good choices is a powerful thing, you know, so. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so psychology, CEO, yep. bringing a company public, Deepak Chopra. I yeah. think I heard a little Deepak Chopra name drop yeah, in there. Yeah. So tell us about Deepak. Well, I think, you know, growing up, uh, I was really lucky. And my mother, because of like our kind of her spiritual beliefs, um, we, you know, we, I grew up in a, like we, my roommates that, channel entities and I grew up and we had Tai Chi lessons at my house and the, and, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, shamanic breathe, like breathing workshops at my house. And so like, I, I, you know, I grew up around that stuff and I think for a long time, um, you know, and when I say that, I think it's, you know, it's important because what I've, you know, what I've come to understand about me is that I'm a, you know, I'm a flesh suit, but I'm this kind of energetic being that lives within that. And I get to choose how much power that energetic being has on the given day. It depends on how, what I feed it, how I harness it, how I look at it, how I relate to it. And I learned a lot of that when I was a kid. But because of that trauma, I also always used to joke that I had like the new age Catholic upbringing because my family's Catholic. And so there was all the traumas associated with like, oh, people do that stuff and they're not real. You know, I, I have a lot of people that I know that like might say the same thing about the Catholic religion, the Christian religion where they had 
some trauma that just all of a sudden they separated themselves from that group. And it, that was it for me. And I think that as I got older and started to have, you know, started to find my own truths and go to do my own work, that's when I started to see that there was a lot more to that and that it wasn't as, it, it was much more uh, direct applicable science than it was woo-woo. And I, and I just think I needed the awareness to get to that point. You know, and it's one of the things I love about the, I have some friends that are, you know, just absolute, um, you know, can't talk about God, can't talk about anything beyond where they are today. Not necessarily like, you know, against the religion, but they just don't understand the the, the, the more than the sum of our parts. And when I started to do my own work and I started to see that, it became so applicable to my journey now professionally, personally. You know, it's one of the things that, you know, I, I talk pretty openly about my spirituality, even with business, because it's, you know, who I am. And, and I've yet to find a, a high a high profile executive um, or a professional of sorts, you know, regardless of whether they're a C-suite or independent or whatever it is that does not have some sort of a spiritual ritual or practice they do every day. Hmm. Sometimes it's- So you, you just said you've yet to find anybody that does not. Correct. Yeah. Now- there's some that are on the way up, but even I would argue the ones that aren't necessarily spiritual have a moment of silence they take every day and they go back on the patio and they sit still. And they might not have defined it as such, but they know that the benefits that it has to them. The, the interesting thing to me about, I would say, spiritual sciences is that there's typically a quantifiable result to that. They just haven't seen the numbers yet. you know. And, and so I think that the 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 higher I got, the, the better the, the 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 more success that I found, the harder it became to manage all of those moving pieces. And the more I realized that that I had to do those things on a daily basis if I wanted to continue to operate at the level that I was. And that if I didn't do those things, there was going to be short circuits that happened in a number of ways. Now for for me, I'm a very compassionate, kind, patient, loving, fun guy. When I'm in my lower self, where I start to short circuit, I get impatient, uh, I get immature, I, I lash out, I get moody. You know, that's that's where my lower self kind of shows up, and those are all things that are maladapted to the environment that I live in on a regular basis. So it's a, those were all tools that I was able to establish to utilize for me, and they're different for everybody. But it was like all of those things that I'd heard as a kid. It was like one day, you know, I had some plant medicine experiences that like kind of changed things for me, and it was like, oh, they were right about all this. Oh no! Hey, that big that it wasn't like twenty five year old like oh shucks yeah. parents were right about everything. It was like a deeper <laughs> level of that of like oh all those things that they had taught me were real, and there was some validity to them. And they might not have shown up in the box that I was presented them in, but they were real, and that I needed to learn how those things worked for me. So yeah, that was a big piece of it. Yeah, it's super interesting that you talk about that spirituality piece because uh, uh, have you ever read Ray Dalio's book Principles? Oh, for Ray Dalio's. Yeah. yeah, you know, so uh, he credits meditation. I think he he might have said two hours a day is his average. That, but he credits that two hours of med- meditation a day is the single most important thing to his success. Well, Phil Jackson talks about it in Sacred Hoops, which is one of my favorite all time leadership books. Uh, but he talks about it there mindfulness to him was the most important thing on his team. And when you were on the ninety one through ninety three bowls, if you couldn't tell him what was happening on the court, he wouldn't let you play. You know, hey, you're up. Where's where's the ball at? Who had it last? Where was the last shot? Where are the guards? You can't you can't tell me. Okay, you're up. Where are we at? Because that that stillness and mindfulness of what was happening around him was more important than the 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 ferocity that you were going to hit the court with. I got to read that book. I was a rabid uh, Bulls fan growing up in Illinois. You ever read Sacred Hoops? No. Oh, bro, I just blew your mind. Yeah, you did. It's like 
250 pages. Okay. I've printed 17 times. I still have a half a case in my house that I haven't given out yet. So I have to see if I can dig it in my, if I can dig into storage and find it, I got a half a case somewhere. All right. Awesome. Sick. It's right next to my half a case of like, the, you know, this, the seven habits of highly effective people. And, oh yeah. And the five habits and the seven dysfunctions of like, I've got all. <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of all those books. Uh, but sacred groups now I have to have that. I um, actually give out uh, the richest man of Babylon to, oh. to a lot of like high school and college graduates. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Wooten's another good one too. What is it? The Wooten story. What's the Wooten story? Victor Wooten story from uh, Oh, bro. Oh yeah. No, more. I'm, I'm gonna good. give you a box, buddy. Yeah, I thought I thought I had a great list. No, I love it. But that's I love it when other people are avid readers and like you know stuff. But, you know, but the thing I loved about Phil Jackson too yeah. was that for him, you know, the reason why I read that book is amazing. Um, and I'll actually, you know, Michael Willis, you're the rock star, sir. You inspired me. An amazing sales guy. One of the better sales guys I've ever worked with. Absolute pain in my butt. Probably one of the biggest evils, probably because he was a lot like me and it just drove me bananas. But I needed to figure out how to capitalize on that. And, you know, one of the things that that Sacred Hoops taught me was that, you know, Jordan was, he, he led the league in, you know, in, in scoring. He was MVP. It wasn't until the year that he didn't win MVP that the, the team became a championship team. Right. And it was it was about that you know he was better than the others and so what what Jackson expected of him was he expected him to give more to help more to show up more to teach better to do those things to lead because he had that to give and it was once he harnessed that for the team that that was when he won and and Jackson was I mean he he studied indigenous you know spiritual ceremonies he meditated every day the team meditated every practice. I did not. I knew he did, but I didn't know the team did as well. It, it was like like a requirement. Yeah, I love the mindfulness. I mean, it was, he would just straight call them out on the court. Do you know what's going on right now? If you do not, if you're not paying attention and you don't, you're not mindful about this entire game. You can't play right. Um, well, thank you for that tip. I mean, absolutely. Oh yeah. You know, uh, did I tell you I um, just wrapping up a book, uh, financial fitness. Oh, you told me about it, but I haven't heard. I haven't heard this. Yeah, I started it in COVID, and I've uh, been working through it. But the reason I bring it up right now is because. Really, over the last 12 months, I'd have to say, uh, my wife and I went to Canyon Ranch up in Woodside, California, met this amazing woman, John Marie Mudd, and um, she turned me on to a little bit more of uh, more of the flow element of things and incorporating that into finances, which kind of led me to change the book a little bit and led to this podcast as well. Um, and so that, that flow and that mindfulness has kind of got me down this road of diving into a number of different books, Stephen Cutler's books, Rise of Superman, a bunch of others, that I've now started to feed in back into the book before I publish it. So uh, I definitely appreciate that. So I'll have to get into it. Yeah, it's such, a, it's such a quick read too. It's a fun one. It's a yeah. real, real, real quick read. Yeah, but I, but I think that's, you know, that was one of the things, you know, I got um, cycling was something I got into, um, yeah. especially with, you know, we've talked about that. Like it, there's just the, my brain doesn't shut off ever, ever shut off. It's constantly going. Um, and I'm grateful for it. It's, you know, I've learned how to, to harness that for, for, you know, for my benefit. Um, but it's also a lot. It's the, you know, it's the stress we take on. It's the, you know, if, if I make a mistake, then people lose jobs and, you know, millions of dollars are lost and I have a fiduciary responsibility in all of my businesses today. And, you know, I, I think that, that what I learned as I got to, as I started, you know, and I, and I wouldn't even say that it was the, I mean, the public company was definitely the vehicle by which I learned a lot of these things. You know, I learned what true fiduciary responsibility was. Not I didn't, I don't think intrinsically have that already, but what a sacred right that is when somebody says, hey, I'm going to give you my money because I believe in you this much. 
Like there's something so sacred about that. And like, so it's, it's, it's me watching your kids. And like, there's the people that cool, baby money, don't watch your kids. And then there's the people that are your friends that are like, these are the things that I've set up for them tonight. Are you cool with this? Because it's, it's an honor to them to, to watch your children. They see what an honor it is. And like, and to me, that's fiduciary if you're really mindful about it. It's that the like, you're, you're feeling comfortable enough with me that like the thing that we all, we all hold for safety, whether we want to admit it or not, because it's easy to say like, um, uh, uh now Naval Ravikant, who's like one of my favorite, I talked to you about him last time I saw you, you know, he talks about like figuring out what you want because there, it, it's easy to find a passion, but if you can't support yourself, then that's all you're going to focus on. You know, he talks about how like Jesus denounced everything and Buddha was a prince. So figure out where you want to be before you try to really find that pure unbridled happiness because the reality is those are always going to be intermittent factors if you haven't decided that yet. You know, if you're going to renounce, you know, denounce everything and live in a, you know, a commune, great, you're going to find happiness. If you're not going to do that, then you have to find a stable means of, of supporting yourself or your family or whoever because that's going to be what you wake up and worry about. And once that's addressed, now you can start to find passion and happiness and those are, you know, those are ongoing things, but you have to address those, you know? And I think that that's, a, you know, a big piece of that. Right? Yeah. That makes total sense. Mm-hmm. When you think back, you said you had some struggles growing up. What are some of the struggles that, that you went through on your journey and, you know, what did you learn from them that kind of kept you in the game and continuing to have really what I feel is a real growth mentality that you have, mm-hmm. you're always trying to get better, always trying to grow, help others. Well, I would say there are a couple of big things. Um, you know, my both my parents um, were, were hugely instrumental. My parents got divorced when I was very young. I, I really don't remember them together at all. My stepmom's been around since I was three, so I've got a bonus mom. She's been there just as long, just as stable. Um, I like that term, bonus mom. Yeah, because she really is. You know, I, I, I really lucked out this life. I got that. Um, you know, and one of the things that they always taught me is if you don't like your reality, you're the only one who can change it. And so if you want something different, and that was through, you know, me putting myself in, you know, in institutions and, you know, and whether it was a, a you know, state paid vacation or we were paying through for insurance and it was a hospital or whatever that vacation looked like at the time, it was that I was the creator of those. So that, and as soon as I wanted to start creating a different lifestyle, I had the ability to do that. I just had to do it, you know? And so it got to a point when, you know, my father and I hit that stage where, you know, I think I'm, I got it that day and I've got what it takes to to be the man, you know, it was that they're like, Hey, you, this is your reality. If you don't like it, change it. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear you complain about it. I've heard you complain about this for a long time. And then you keep making these choices, you know, like to change the oil in your car. If you don't want it to break down, I don't want to hear you bitch about it anymore. How long did it take for that to sink in? Ooh. Um, I would say, or is it still sinking in? No, I would say it sunk in, but I would say it was, it was a good prop 25 years bro, of hearing it before it really like struck me. And it struck me honestly, and I'll be—I'll give you the the, the that it was uh, Christmas 2004. I was incarcerated. Um, I had a very clear understanding with my parents that I didn't call them if I was incarcerated or if I had legal issues. I didn't want them to pay my bills. It was always my choice, and I, I, I knew that from an early age. And they would never visit. And it was a—it was no thing. It wasn't like they were like, "Hey, we're not going to come see you." I'm just like, "Don't." There's no reason to see me in a box. And so that Christmas, all of a sudden, I had visitors, and it's my dad and my stepmom, and I was like, "Oh shit, somebody died." And, you know, in my head, I'd always inconvenience them with the things I was doing. And so they were just tired of dealing with my shit. And when what they said in that meeting was the thing that really upset us wasn't that you created all these issues. It was that you robbed us of having a son and we wanted your presence. We wanted you to be there. And like, by the time 
we were able to kind of have those experiences with you, you're out causing trouble. And so it wasn't any of that shit. We would have dealt with that, but I wanted to teach you how to play catch. I wanted to teach you about women. I wanted to teach you what a good man does. And I didn't give him the opportunity to do that. And so for me, it was, that was a pivotal lesson in like that. My presence was really what was wanted most of the time. And while I was too busy creating all of these things that I thought everybody wanted, whether it was a job or, you know, or a hustle or whatever it was, it was what they really wanted was just me to be there with them through that and then work on it with them if it was something I wanted to work on with them or, and be around. And I think that for me, that was a, a really big piece of understanding the, that all of the other stuff I was doing was noise. You know, all the little things of trying to create this reality that really wasn't creating a reality was, was causing chaos around me. It wasn't, it was taking, it was detracting from me being able to be present, which I think at the time was probably what I was seeking. You know, it's the, it's the people now that I talk to that are, you know, I've been in cannabis now for a while. And um, when I started that company, it was really to start a product for people like me who like, would, I didn't want something that had graffiti on it that was like really kitschy. I just wanted a quality product that I could understand why they did it the way they did it. You know, like if I go to the store, I'm going to buy organic. I don't think my, my wife will still shun me if I could show up with something that's part of the dirty dozen that wasn't organic and they had an option. You know what I mean? It's, it's that stuff, right? So it was just that it was just starting to understand that like there was intentional stuff there. And like when I started that company, I wanted to start something that was a product for me. And it, it allowed me to start to move into a place where I wanted to to remove noise from my life. And I wanted to show up authentically in places and I wanted to create things that were authentically what I wanted. You know, I had a clothing company for a while that I don't feel like it was authentically mean, but I learned a lot. And even if it was that because I learned a lot through you the wrong thing. I learned a lot through it. And, and it was like when I moved into this space, I was able to see that if I showed up how I was, like I was okay. It was it was what I thought other people wanted of me or who they wanted me to be or the other things that I thought I needed to possess or own uh, in order to to be liked. It was just creating noise and distance between all those things. And the the it seems like the older I get, the more simplified things get. You know, the more powerful and important they get to, and the more uh, responsibility other people count on those things, but the more simplified they get. It's not a lot of noise. It's just me showing up authentically with supports in place to make sure that like I'm able to be there. And I think that for me was a big piece of that was just hearing my father say that that day made me realize that like I was the gift. It wasn't what I could do. It wasn't who I know. And like, you know, I love traveling because it doesn't matter who you know when you show up. If you're nice, you have friends. And if you're not, you don't. It's just that easy. Like it's so simple, right? And when he said that to me that day, it made me realize that, that like I was the gift to the world. You know, just like you are, just like our wives and our children are. And like, you know, I'm, you know, I know you're like I am with my kids, like the biggest gift I've ever been given. But that's the gift. It's not how he plays video games. It's not how I do work. Now, if I show up and I am able to authentically be me in a way that um, also helps to, to generate revenue and or affect a business and a positive outcome, then and that's my intention that I can be authentically be me generating wealth for myself and others. But I have to show up with that intention. And, and I can't show up thinking I'm going to do all these things because I think that's the, you know, because I was watching, you know, uh, Fox Business this morning and that's, you know, it's not that. It's that if I show up intentionally and I authentically want to be me in a business environment, then that means that I'm going to be diligent because that's who I am. I'm going to work harder than most because that's what I do. And I'm going to care a little bit more than the next guy does because that's what I do. And if that is directed with the intention of generating opportunity, then I get to do the generating opportunity. If I want to do it at home, chill with my kids, I can do that too. I've just been, you know, lucky enough that I believe business is an art. 
I've seen it as such. It didn't, it didn't always. It was you know a job for a long time, but it, it, it's creating it's creating a passion and taking a passion and putting structure around it, um, scalable structure, so that it can be duplicated and maybe moved to outer markets, sold whenever that is. But it's me showing up authentically, removing the noise, and just applying those same principles that like he told me that day that like stuck clear as stone and it was cutting concrete for me that day, and it was. You know, and and a piece of that is remembering my value, right? Like you know, through all those that trauma, you know, I think all of these things sync up once the work's done. You know, so like I had these lessons that were carved in stone at these points in time, and then once I all that had come out, I realized that there was a lot of you know mess inside of me that had been created by me, had been happened to me, whatever that was. But it was like once I was able to clear some of that wreckage out, those two things aligned, where it was like okay. I really, really value who I am personally. And, you know, and I have friends, which tells me that other people value me. And okay, now I, I, I really, I, I want to work and accomplish things. And so it was like starting to figure out how I can monetize that and how I can structure that, you know, and, and like, I, I can't look at a business and not just for me, like owning some of my own businesses, like, how do you make money? Is that, is that your top money maker? Do you speak to your demographic? How's your brand? How's it like, I, like for me, that's, that's how, you know, it's the, uh, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a contractor looking to build. Like, I really want to hear, like I have some friends that have like their own little thing going and they wouldn't call me about it. Cause it's not that I'm not fun with it. I love hearing about business, but like, I don't know how to like, not look at it in that light. Because to me, it's like, that's what it is. It's your art. Like what medium did you use? What, how, how did, you know, where do you see it hanging? How does it, how is the light? Is it, is it, you know, is it, is it back? It was a backlit, it's a front lid. Are you doing the spotlight? Like, like thinking through all of those things. And I think for me, it was that stuff with business. And I realized like once I cleared that noise, I had the ability to create. It wasn't just generating, you know, and I, and I say like revenue generation because that was like my specialty with business consulting, but it was really just like moving bullshit. You know, we get so like bogged down and it was just like removing bullshit. Like, what do you do? Do you believe you do that? And I always talk about my responsibilities, right? And like, so if I think that my product's better than other people, don't I have a responsibility to get that in the hands of other people? And don't I have a responsibility to use as loud a megaphone as humanly possible to get that out there? Yeah. It's not because I'm being greedy or a dick. It's because I really believe I have a better product. If I can show up with that mindset and say, hey, listen, I think this, do you think this is better than theirs? Yeah. Okay, good. Then we need to make sure that that guy buys our stuff because it's better than theirs. That's amazing. And I'm and on that note, I'm gonna I'm gonna toast you because that was that was outstanding. And we're toasting a little bourbon. Uh actually, uh was it an old fashioned or Manhattan that you made it? We did old fashioned. Okay, old fashioned. So, uh, so Bryce uh, was played bartender as we we got going here, and it's uh, what time is it? It's about five o'clock, a little after five Phoenix time, and so we're we're it's happy hour. Yeah, you know? happy hour kind of starts around three in Phoenix, doesn't yeah. it? Well, but I think that, you know it's the other. It's one of the things that, like, honestly, I, I really enjoyed about you, and I, you know, and and you know, Russians was it like. We're really lucky to to have the lives that we have. We've also worked really, really hard, and it's important to us. And each day, you know, I know for me, I wake up and I think, okay, how do I get to do this a little bit better? How do I support it a little bit more? And it becomes fun. Somewhere along the line, like that, that amount of work because we, we've grown accustomed to the the stress that comes along with it, which is something that you have to adjust to. But I think it's one of the things I like. Like I love sitting down and talking about this stuff. Like how do we how do we affect change? And the reality is there's a lot of people who affect change through, you know, through social programs, through these things. And we get to affect change in the way that the revenue changes hands and through how businesses generate money. And like, you know, there's not, if you really look at that world, backing order, there's not a whole lot of us who do affect revenue on a large scale. You know, it's, it's the person, like I was talking to a buddy the other day who does um, ayahuasca ceremonies. And he would say, he's like, you know, I really want to 
touch kids. Like I really want to like get to a place where I can affect kids through plant medicine. We can have their families there and we can support them because everyone will do everything for their kids. And I'm like, I agree. Well, are there two children in my world? What about that CEO? If you affect him, you just touch 10,000 lives. And like, I get it that like the altruistic in us wants to help that child. Everyone wants to help that child. Think about how many children's homes you touched by helping that CEO be a better guy. And I think that's the thing that like, I try not to lose sight of in this, that like we have the ability and honor to affect a lot more lives than just the people that we touch directly because of our, our networks and because of the, the people that we get to associate with. And like, that's such a cool thing. Like, let me see it. Now. Yeah. You, you and I talked about that a little bit about, about this podcast, in fact, mm -hmm. um, and the altruism of it. And then that's fine, but also then pushing it out. And how do you push it out to even impact more people? Totally. Um, there's a lot of people out there that probably sat there and listened to what you had to say about your energy, your brain's always working. And obviously it is, we're hearing you, you're a little like Elon Musk, you're just going. Yeah. Um, and you, it strikes me as you're someone that wants to optimize, maximize your, your, what I like to call green and growing or ripe and rotting. So you're, you've got that growth mentality. You're always trying to grow. You, you hit a goal, you, you, you look for the next one, being very dynamic in that mindset. What are some of the drivers behind that, um, that, that drive you and push you? So when there's someone sitting at home listening to this or driving and they're, and they're like, man, that Bryce guy, he's, he's done so much in such a short period of time. He's always thinking, he's like, what are some of the, the things that drive you, your, your true north or your goals or your, your compass? Um, I mean, there are a couple of things I would say that I, I'm a, I'm a extravagant and I don't mean bougie, I'm extravagant, meaning that if we're going to go out to dinner tonight, I could just hit you and say, we're going to go out to dinner tonight. Or I could take 10 minutes. I could find what new restaurant's opening. It doesn't mean it's the nicest restaurant, just some new place that had cool reviews and then figure out what's happening around after that. And that 10 minutes is the difference between me saying, Hey, Darren, you want to go to dinner? Or, Hey, Darren, there's this really cool spot opening in North Phoenix. Let's go check it out. And right down the street from there is this other cool spot that's opening. It's the same group that did so-and-so and so-and-so. It just changed the, the course of our night. That was 10 minutes of my time. Mm -hmm. That's everything. That's every single thing in my life. And sometimes it wears my wife out, God bless her. <laughs> but it's everything in my life. They're like, the difference, like I was watching, well, how what was the show earlier? Oh, no, I, I fell asleep with Netflix on it, autoplayed the show Waiting last night. What, Ryan Reynolds, like one of his early movies. Oh, yeah. And like one of the catchphrases for shenanigans in a restaurant is like the difference between ordinary and extraordinary is just that little extra. And it's so cheesy, but it's so true. Like my old assistant um, is now the head of HR for our company. She's worked for me for years. She's an absolute just boss lady. So proud of her. And she's an over-the-top person too. And I always talk about it like I'm, I'm going to officiate her wedding. So instead of asking me, she sent me this box that was this beautiful box with candles and a little journal. And it said like, you know, will you marry us? And it was this whole thing. I'm like, that's so cute. She's like, it was Etsy. It took me five minutes and 20 bucks. That's the difference. Everything in my life is that. And like if, if I'm sitting on my couch and I want to start a business, the difference between us being the best business it can be and just being a business is literally that 10 to 20 minutes of planning every day. And like early on, I just realized that that like a lot of people do the bare minimum. You know, I always say there's a difference between the employee that wants a promotion and the employee that doesn't want to get fired. They both did their job today. There's a whole different outcome between those two people. And I think the driving factors for me are that I know that I have the, it's that big heart thing, right? 
you know, one of the like one of the best compliments one of my partners ever gave me is like, I don't know how you keep going. You just don't stop. And this no doesn't mean a thing to me. It's this no just means not you, not right now. It doesn't mean it's not going to happen for me. It just means it's not going to happen with you. And like I just learned that early on that like if I could keep going and I could keep pushing, there was going to be an opportunity that presented itself as long as I didn't give up. And and that as long as I continued to have that same intention with the I could ex- I could exceed. You know, I always say like I'll either outsmart you or I'll work you. But some one of those two things is about to go down, right? And, and it was just that thing that like I wasn't the smartest of the other people. I wasn't always the most talented sales guy, but I got no problem getting an hour early and seeing an hour late. As long as you can keep up with those numbers, we're good. Well, well as you were making the drinks, you said uh, you do a ski trip up to Park City. Yeah. And the only people that are allowed are you're the first one on the mountain and the last one off. Yep. Well, that's the whole thing. It's you know, and go as hard as you want. You can drink as hard as you want, but. But that's the, those are the qualifications. And I think it's just that. And I think that, but like, and the funny thing is even, you know, when, when those are your qualifications for a trip, think about the characters you get on that. They're the most extreme of the extreme. Like, you know, a couple of guys that were like pro skiers and like this, you know, and I'm a snowboarder. So I'm like one of two snowboarders on this like six person trip. And so I got to like work extra hard to like, but it, but it's just that. I think, you know, for me it was, I just saw that like I had the ability to put in a little bit more effort than other people. And the outcomes were so substantially different. You know, and so it's that one plus one equals two is one plus one equals four. Yeah. Like, and it wasn't just once or twice. It was like every aspect of my life. You know, yeah. I get all that. It makes total sense. But is there, is there a moment where you, you take a pause where you kind of like, fuck, you know, I need to, I need a break. Yes. And I think for me, that was, you know, when we, uh, you know, I did the, took out of nine public and, uh, what I'll give the quick elevator on how that happened. So, um, I was in fashion. I had a fashion clothing company. Uh, we sold all over the world for a number of years. Two thousand and eight, two thousand nine happened, um, and you know a lot of businesses that went out of business. And through you know any kind of uh, bankruptcy, you know bankruptcy, like or um, you know or restructuring of the company, fashion is typically net ninety terms. So you have clothing that's there. They have it. They have your displays and store all the, and all the things. And then when they declare bankruptcy. It now that's part of their stock, and I have to then take them to court to show that that wasn't paid, and so that those products are due back. And after about the first four court cases, it was like, okay, we're going to go broke trying to get our clothing back. And so we still had some stuff, and ran it, you know, meagerly for a while. And, and I ended up opening a retail store, and then we sold out in our flagship, and I sold other places. But what happened through that was I realized that I was pretty decent at marketing those businesses, and so. You know, the retail store turned into selling other people's brands, which then got sold, and then it moved into marketing. And it was marketing is a great industry. I love uh, creative monetization. Um, it's it's also an industry that doesn't, at least today, align with my personal views. I think it did align more with them back then. Um, and I it, and I've always kind of been a searcher. You know, um, I was not, I didn't really have a spiritual awareness then, but I was asked to sit in an ayahuasca ceremony. Did not know. I, I kind of knew. I mean, I've, I've studied historically what these things are. And the indigenous, you know, traditions and things like that. But when I had that experience, the 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 first thing that was very clear to me was that marketing wasn't the angle, wasn't where the industry I was supposed to be. Um, it was great, but it was also, you know, if you and I, if you and I were friends and we were both marketers, and you left a, a lead list on your desk, I was going to take a picture of it. Not because I was a dick, but that's because that's what we do. And I've had it happen multiple times to me, and to the point where I, I wasn't even mad about it when it happened. I was mad at myself because I left it faced up and I should have put a face down on my desk. I knew that they were coming over. And I, when I had that experience, it was just very clear that like I was, I kind of had a side business candidate, so to speak. I was uh, helping fund a couple of uh, people I knew in California that were trying to get stuff going. And 
it was clear as day to me that marketing was not my arena anymore and it was time to go full-time with cannabis. So when I started that, it was a, a both feet in, you know, and I, I told my parents I was getting into cannabis and legitimately my dad told me not to call him. I got locked up again, hung up the phone. We didn't talk for nine months. Whoa. So I already got a manila envelope in the mail with a Time Magazine article that said the it was the smart entrepreneurs are moving to cannabis and just a, a literally a legal notebook piece of paper that said, I get it, left out. And that was the that was the first contact we had after nine months, and so when I got into that, it was it was really I knew that it was the end of prohibition. Um, it was an emerging market, which is so cool to me to like to see part of that. I was not a cannabis smoker, um, and I I don't have dreadlocks at the time of this recording, but I had dreadlocks for years. So I'd meet with a you know property owner to to get their property, and of course I look like the just constant pothead. I've got like dreadlocks and tattoos, and I'm boys. You don't use any any cannabis at the time. At the time, I didn't use all yeah. the first two years in the industry. I didn't smoke at all. It just wasn't my, it wasn't my thing. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, you know, I'm meeting all these people doing all this stuff. And when I started going out shopping, it was, there was the, you know, you have your budget buyers and then your quality buyers. They're both legit. Like, you know, there's, there's, there's people who shop at Walmart and Whole Foods. They both exist for a reason. They're both killing the game. There's plenty of customers for both of them. I wanted to go to Whole Foods for my cannabis. I didn't want to go to Walmart. And at the time there wasn't, there was just Walmart. You didn't have quality like you had, and, and not that there wasn't. If anyone's listening, there's like, man, there was some good. There might have been good stuff back then, but it wasn't for me when I walked into the store. I didn't have a hundred dollar budget. I wanted to know what was on sale. I wanted to go and buy the best cannabis product, cannabis product to meet whatever this was that I needed at that time. And every time I went to a store, wherever it was, it just I couldn't have that conversation with them. It was some little stoner behind the counter that was like, when I said I want the best product, he's like, oh, dude, this one tested ninety eight percent THC, and you're like. Sweet. Not really looking to talk to the angels right now, bro. I just want to get some cannabis products. And so, you know, we created that and started kind of like just a real simple brand that was like, you know, like we talked about earlier, like just consistency, transparency, and let's have fun doing it. And so, you know, when we created that, we started the public process on uh, OTC. There was a Pink's uh, first. It was like 2015. We didn't have a kid. There was no cannabis public companies. So we were a synthetic biopharmaceutical. So for the first two years, we were a year and a half, we were public. It was, we were like with incest before, like they got, you know, all the founders got arrested and all that. And so there really wasn't a space for it. But but what happened through that process was we watched those markets emerge. MedMen went public a year later um, and just destroyed the market for everybody for a year because they did everything you're not supposed to do, but people still invested in them because it was the new gold rush, right? Uh, and, and I think through a lot of those, I, I started to realize that there was a way to just intentionally do this a little bit better. You know, there was other best practices and places. And I think that that was like, that for me was like really where those lessons started to set in. That it was like, it was because we had that awareness that it was just a little bit extra, you know, like putting, if we're going to put a sticker on the side of it, because by lag, I put a sticker on the side of it. Why don't we put the QR code and just put the test results on that QR code? Like little stuff like that. Where it was like, oh, no, no, you don't even have to worry about the test. Like, yeah, the store has the test, but you could just test it from your house. Just scan that. It's going to pull up our whole laboratory test results. Mm-hmm. And, you know, little things like that that like aren't that big a deal to someone like me who was out shopping. I just wanted a quality product and I want to know it was safe. Like those were the differences. And so it was kind of like all that stuff of like just, you know, that intention waking up a little bit earlier doing it. And so like once I had that, this is full tilt going into cannabis, like I knew that that was my arena and that was where... You know, and you and I talked about it briefly before, but, you know, I'd had multiple businesses. Like I've always really liked, I would do, you know, I did consulting while I was starting at a nine. So I would do uh, a couple of like really, really, um, really 
uh, wonderful yoga teachers that I helped with, um, primarily one of them being um, Anton Mackey, just an incredible guy. And he, you know, acted as a devil for you as one of my clients, but he was also like kind of a mentor. And like, as I'm waking up and I've had this plant medicine experience where I know that I'm not really in, in kind of flow with my life and where I'm supposed to be, he, yeah, working with him through this while I'm supporting him and, you know, helping him build his business. And it was, I just started to see that like there was a there was a real opportunity here to to apply a lot of those same principles of like being a little bit more intentional, a little bit better. You know, it was the you know we're a corporate company, but we're in cannabis, right? So you know, I've I've employed two people that that have never had jobs. They were both in their forties. How does that feel? Amazing. It's it's it, it is more than anything else. You know, and and it's 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 the number I I keep tracking constantly. You know, I, I thirteen hundred employees, thirteen hundred seventy three people Arizona mm-hmm. I've employed. And it's a, it's a really, you know, like, yeah, I mean, it was, we you know, we did a company that was doing 1.7 million. Uh, by the time I, you know, resigned, I like, retired from the company, you know, I think they're doing, they're eight states, about to be three countries. And it's, you know, 350 million the day that I took it public. Like, that's a really cool number. And that was a really beautiful, rad lesson that I got to have, right? And I got to have such a cool experience in that. And you employed 1,373 people in the state of Arizona. Yes, well done. Yeah, dude. And, and, and like those two people, like I remember one of them just sitting down with him, and he was so honest. He just looked at me. He's like, Melissa, I've never had a real job. I've slowly my entire life. Mm. I'm 43 and I have kids. I just want to shop. And I'm like, man, I, there's not a better pitch. That's amazing. And you're now you're taking that knowledge and expertise as well as your grit and determination and, and applying that to the psychedelic space. And, yeah. And that's how, as you know, you and I first met. Um, we sat down uh, on a, a plant-based journey, uh, ayahuasca, uh, Joshua tree, and um, you were a great uh, shepherd, along with our buddy uh, Rustin. Um, and the, so that's Rustin. Yeah, yeah. Was that she cowboy? <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Um, so anyway, where was we going with all that? So you're taking the the psychedelic space. Well, I think in like you know what you were talking, you and I were talking like yeah. I expected psychedelic. The first time I went, it was a, a white t-shirt. It was gray sweatpants. I wouldn't bring any of my belts, none of my watches. It was flip flops. Like I want to be very mindful that I'm going to be in this like very spiritual, um, I, you know, a white it, it, Native American reservation is what I expected. And the first time that I saw it, it was. Two rocket scientists, uh, you know, Hollywood producer, two big name actors, and and what I learned in psychedelics because I had a terrible experience with psychedelics in high school. I didn't party with them later, but what I learned is, you know, and much like we've become friends, is this is for the people that are searching. It, what you know, I expected the, I expected psychedelics to be the full woo woo, and what I found was a bunch of people that were very very high functioning, they were very very high performing, that had hit the ceiling. Of where they were at, you know, and I and I think you know one of the things that you've talked about is that you know I think you know we have our executive session for our C suite was every Tuesday. Uh, I think they moved it to Wednesday now, but it was every Tuesday we sat down and you know and I would say like you know as the CEO, I had a very clear vision of what I thought needed to happen, and one of my favorite things that's ever that ever happens to me is when my employee tells me how wrong I am, and here's all the reasons, because it tells me that I hired the right person and they know that that sector better than I do. And that's exactly how it should be. And I think that what I learned through that was you had all of these people that were super high achievers. You know, that was the funny thing. I think I was about to do the IPO and I'm sitting there like, I'm the broke guy at this table. This is incredible. Like I'm the least successful person at this table. And I just had this experience and it was, a, it's for those people. Like my executive session was for me as CEO to get a different perspective on our business. 
psychedelics became the tool that I realized I could get a different perspective on everything in my life. And I could do it very, very easily with this single plant that was going to help me there. And that was the game changer for me was the the people that I have those experiences with are people like you and Rustin and Chris, like these people that are high functioning, high achieving people so that we can do better. You know, we talked about, like I told you before, I have a lot of endurance athletes, like really, you know, being a cyclist, you know, I'm not a competitive cyclist, but I'm a, you know, 30 to 40 mile bike rider. Um, and, you know, I have the guys that are 50, 100, um, you know, they're already doing endurance like runners, you know, cyclists, whatever. And, I found a lot more of them sort of use it as well because they're able to have a, you know, to microdose mushrooms and go for a long run. And they have such a better awareness of their body of where the pain is and where the, where they might have tightness, where they need to stretch. And, and like, those are the overachievers. Those aren't the, the underperformers there, you know? Yeah. So, so tell me, tell me a little bit more about that because when you told me about that, that really blew my mind about the, the triathletes. Yeah. So, what we're finding now, I mean, it was funny when I was first in cannabis and I mean, and Darren, you know me, the, the listeners will look me up and see how weird I am, but you know, I'm just big on like, let's, let's get loud and let's get weird. And so I remember meeting with, we talked to coach Glassman, who's the head of uh, CrossFit. Um, it was a, a gym out here that had, had some legal issues and they were supporting them because of some of the claims they made. And I tried to get them to endorse um, our, our brand. And they were like, he's like, listen, man, I, I can't do that. But what I can tell you is that the top 10% of all cross, CrossFit athletes in the world use products like yours because they count macros. And so they're not going to have a beer afterwards. They're not going to chance those macros, but like cannabis allows them to deal with the anti-inflammation, relax without messing up any kind of a diet restriction they might be currently working with. And it, it was just that, like the, the psychedelics with with our, our athletes, we're finding that they're able to uh, perform better, they, um, to uh, have, a, you know, more often, like just more optimal workouts because they don't have that same uh, inhibiting thought pattern, right? Like, like you and I know through that is that we get these, like we get these patterns. Like I let the Tibetan book of the dead says about there's one true reality and we just get all these prejudices that, that we, there's as many prejudices. There are grains of sand in Sahara that we pick up over a lifetime. Yep. And with any kind of exercise, especially with like endurance, where you're really pushing yourself through what your, whatever that wall is, this helps you to have a better understanding of that and push through that, whatever you thought was capable. So Bryce, um, you you took a lot of that experience that you took in the cannabis space and you brought it over into psychedelics and Mindsley. Um, and we we got involved a little bit and talked a little bit about Mindsley. I'd like to know more about Mindsley and what their mission was. Yeah. And also the work that they were doing with veterans and the if my memory serves me, 90 plus percent success ratio on helping yeah. veterans with PTSD. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, so 2012 been cannabis, it's just started. Colorado is just going legal. California had a quasi-legal market. If anyone remembers 2012, Obama's in. Uh, it's his second term and he's decided that the cannabis program in California needs to stop. So two months, he's the DEA is kicking in doors to families and raiding houses and stores. So this has all just happened, and I'm watching the emergency room business. I lived in Telluride, Colorado for a number of years, um, and, and it's a small town. Everyone knows each other, and we watched the emergency room visits there go through the roof with, with edibles. Um, not because they were being misprescribed or missold, but people just don't. You know, if, if you say take two, a lot of people take a handful. And my concern with psychedelics and the importance that they played in my life, having used them responsibly and ceremonially, is that when we're selling a box of gummies at the store that has psilocybin, meaning magic mushrooms. 
and that person doesn't need two, but they need a handful, that ER visit looks real different. And my fear was that if we started to have these, you know, these products uh, on the market without some sort of education or support, that we were going to have issues. And so I really wanted to post, you know, call now it's 2020, 2021. And I'm going to step away from item nine and we've got a new CEO and it's going on to do its own things. And so I wanted to move into psychedelics. And, um, you know, in a little differences between the markets, um, you know, uh, cannabis started at a state level uh, where they put framework and industry around it. So it was easier for the state level operators to create industry. Psychedelics went a different route, which I think was smarter for the industry in the long run. They went through the federal route and they went directly to, and MAPS is the, the primary organization that's funding all this and pushing it forward. The MAPS was smart. They went straight to the unhelpable veterans. Not meaning that all veterans are unhelpable, but there are a, a very large demographic of veterans with PTSD that we don't, as we hadn't added, as of yet, had the ability to help. You could reduce their symptoms, you know, and like I said, in, you know, in, in mental health and opiates, like our hope was to reduce symptoms by 30%. And when I started looking into the clinical trials on with these, I started seeing that there was veterans that had been houseless, that had, hadn't been able to hold a job. They had, there was no stability to their life at all. And after a series of psilocybin journeys now, also keep in mind that, you know, even we talked about ketamine briefly before this, like, you know, ketamine treatment is actually deemed a 30 session treatment protocol through MAPS. That's how it was. That's what the clinical trials approved for use. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone follows those, but when you're doing a clinical trial and you have X results, those results were, uh, were, were derived from the successful completion of this program. So if you have 30 sessions and only two of those, they administer medicine, and then you go to a psychedelic center today, like a ketamine treatment center, and they give you five sessions or two sessions or whatever that looks like, it's not 30. You didn't have talk therapy leading up to that. You didn't set, we didn't really go through and dive deep into and or refine what your intention for being there is. You're just going to get help. And not that that's bad. It can help, right? But it's a very different outcome in that way. And so with the veterans, they were doing all these clinical trials. And so traditionally with clinical trials, you have three clinical trials. If those clinical trials show an improvement beyond the threshold, much like a trademark or copyright, you have to prove it beyond threat, like beyond the 10% threshold, I think, with a with a copyright or with a, a patent, with um, with clinical trials, I want to say it's 10%. It could be upwards of 20 or 30%. This exceeds all of those. And so they will normally, there's those three trials. If you've if you've improved the outcomes beyond that threshold, then you're done. They've now done five clinical trials with psilocybin, just to make sure they covered all their bases. Not, they're showing a 90% cure rate at a year, which means no, no remission of symptoms at all. And these are people that have never um, had any success. You know, one of the, the beautiful people I've met with um, is named uh, Brett Bretz. He's a local Arizona man, probably one of the most impressive humans I've ever seen in person. Um, he was a double amputee, um, struggled with opiates like a lot of our, our veterans do because we only have a few solutions that we're willing to give them. And um, as a result of a psilocybin experience he had with a girlfriend, he stopped using opiates immediately. And now he works with combat-oriented veterans on this. And, and really what's happening in those spaces is you have someone who had serious trauma around the event, who has a, a neuropathways and alignment that has been burnt. So there's a, there is a, a thought pattern that has literally been engraved into their brain. And what the psychedelics are doing now is giving him the opportunity to go to that experience in third person, watch it occur, and watch it from a third-party view where you can have a new perspective on how that transpired and like what his role in that situation was. 
and allow himself to find peace and to find acceptance with that. But like he, everything he could do, he did. Everything that was there. So a lot of the, the remorse, the guilt, a lot of those things that like we keep us in that little box that we put ourselves in, it's able to remove those. And so, you know, we're right now with psychedelics, we're showing, uh, you know, the, the PTSD is probably the biggest, but they're using it now in hospice care for end of life patients and removing that fear of death, which in hmm. turn helps to improve the quality of life for the end. You know, they know now they feel it's not the end of this. It's just they're, they're transitioning. And so, you know, we're seeing so much there. And I, and I think, you know, with Mindsley, it was my goal because I think there's a, there's a guy named uh, Hamilton um, who does uh, Hamilton Psychedelics or Hamilton Pharmacopoeia. It was a show on Vice for a while. Um, he's a, a kind of a science nerd who's into psychedelics. And there's medical use. It's like it's like cannabis, right? There's a medical use for cannabis. If they're, they're you know, um, phoenixtears.com is the, oh gosh, what's the, Totally blanking right now. And if you ask me any other time, I could spit these stats out pretty clearly. But so phoenixtears.com is a website uh, for campus tincture. Rick Simpson. Rick Simpson oil is a very RSO, as it's called. Uh, this gentleman has been doing research since the 70s with cancer patients and helping to reduce and or cure their cancer. We know that this is the case. There's been all of these things done, but it's not something that we can talk about. That is a really critical piece of cannabis. But you know what else is critical? The dad who used to drink a lot that comes home and smokes a joint now, and he's loving any place with his kids. I would argue that that is as big a quality improvement of life as the cancer reduction is. That's critical. So there are ceremonial uses for all these things, and there's also daily uses for these. Psychedelics is one of those. Well, and you mentioned, and you also, so we have the PTSD work, which which I appreciate. I'm, I'm you know, like you, veterans are near and dear to my heart. I have a lot of good friends. Um that uh, I'm excited to share this story with. Um, but also, you, you mentioned elite athletes, yep. you mentioned artists. Um, but let's talk a little bit about, you know, flow. And, you know, my my take on flow being financial flow is that sense of groundedness you get when you have clearly defined your goals and you've attached energy and resonance to that so that you there's a big enough why behind those goals. And then you have your Maslow's hierarchy that you work up and that's helps you to define again, your why, uh, your values really, you know, what's important about your finances to you. And you kind of work and work up a few levels there. So you get those two things and then you know where everything is, you know what you have, where it all is and, and, and you're organized. And when you have all that, there's that sense of groundedness that you, it's almost like when you meditate, you just have a little bit more peace and calm and it allows you to move more into your flow, which then allows you to achieve other things that are important to you. Well, you you really touched on it, I think, is is the key thing that like, at least that I see with people I'm working with. And even honestly, what I was doing consulting is to find your goals. It is, I would say, more times than not, as a human, I have a goal that I'm working towards. And then the actions that I'm taking are not in alignment with that goal. And that is today, that's yesterday. I mean, this is an ongoing, real-time self-check. And I think, that, like you said, to me, there, the peace comes with a definition. It, it, until I know what those goals are, it, whether I'm working towards them or not, is undefined. So am I accomplishing anything? I don't know. What am I working towards? And I think you said it best, like that. It's just that definition because it, once you define that, you can put the power and the resonance, that intention into accomplishing those goals, but you really have to define those. You know, you touched on earlier with like with some of the things like with item nine, you know, I, I have two children. Um, I love being a dad. It's like anyone who knows me knows it's like the coolest thing I've ever done. I didn't, I didn't want children when I met my wife. I didn't want to get married. 
Um, I was open to them. I just it wasn't on my bucket list at all. I can't imagine my life without my kids now. I was present for my son. It wasn't that I was gone, but I worked six or seven days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day. Will his life be better off hope financially because of the choices I made? Yes. But did he have a present father that whole time? No. When my daughter was born, I'd retired from out of nine and I was doing side projects and I was able to be present. So for me now, it's that balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and the balance is key. And the thing about goals is that I agree. You have to define them, write them down. But what's interesting about goals is that the dopamine release that happens when you actually verbalize a goal happens early. So you're better off not verbalizing a goal, which a lot of times, you know, if you think about it, people, coaches, parents told us to shout it from the rooftops, put it out there. Yeah. But there's a dopamine release when you actually do that. And if you don't do it, then you, you can save that dopamine release for later when you actually achieve the goal. Um, but with psychedelics, it helps, it can help you get into a state of flow. Obviously, special forces have used psychedelics and experimentation to have more group think and flow. Um, Aristotle or Socrates, one or the other, um, you know, used, uh, I forget what was the substance. You might know it's not ketamine, but it's uh, something uh, else. Uh, uh, Acacia? Kikian? Oh yeah, yeah, I can, maybe. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which, which is all of the, it's all of the like that DMT family. Okay. Yeah. And so they they used to do that and trip out and philosophize. Yeah. And so they you know shut down the prefrontal cortex, be able to think creatively and so forth. Um, what Larry Page and for, anyone, Lynn, who, and for anyone who understand what we're saying, that like that frontal cortex is what gives you your social norms which are our limiting belief systems. Right. So it's like, if I wake up today, this is all I can accomplish because this is all I've told myself I can accomplish since all I came. We're able to shut that off. The boundaries come off of what we believe that box has to be. Bingo. Yeah. And so with that, you know, with the athletes you work with uh, and the artists and other people, what about what about that executive or just the the the, the entrepreneur that's trying to, to grow and get better? You know, psychedelics, how can that help them? Larry Page, Sergey Brand, you know, the Silicon Valley set, a lot of them have experimented and still do during the day. Yep. You know, it's not like a party drug. It's really just a tool, really a supplement, an herbal supplement yeah. in a way to enhance productivity, flow, ability to achieve their goals. You said that perfectly. There's So psychedelics are interesting because uh, they're the only medication that I know of when taken in a large dose or a macro dose. It has a completely different chemical reaction than a micro dose. So macrodoses, we're rewiring thought patterns, behavioral patterns. In a microdose, we're we're improving synapse firing. So um, your improved mood, um, improved uh, empathy, right? And so to that executive, if I can go in and I can align with my, even, you know, call not even like my C-suite, call with my VP level, my director level. If I can go in and I can get in the trenches with them and understand where they're coming from a little bit better, the outputs for the company are substantial. Um, because I'm able to set us up in a way to capitalize on the opportunities that they have in front of them. And that's really where that team kind of thing comes in. And what I've seen the most with a lot of um, the executives that I've worked with is that, you know, the, the thing that's that's known but not talked about is that inhibiting stress, that impending doom, that that when something happens, it no longer just, it's, it's your family, but it's your family's family. It's everybody that it's affecting. And that could be very inhibiting. And what I've found with people who are microdosing on a regular, which doesn't necessarily mean every day, there's a lot of different protocols out there if anyone's looking into it. 
You can look them up. There's a ton of different ones with different outcomes and different purposes. But what I've seen is those executives tend to be uh, a little bit happier, a little bit more resilient, a little less affected um, by negativity in the workplace, um, which in turn, those are the things that slow us down. So that what I'm seeing with a lot of the executives that I work with that are you know, microdosing throughout their day, they're just a little bit more effective. It could be a little bit more supportive to that staff member. And, you know, like here, the reality is that we all have direct reports that struggle. And if I can help them turn that around more quickly, just purely from a business standpoint, the efficiency that's saved through that, the amount of dollars that are generated by having that, you know, that all start come back quickly are substantial. But at the end of the day, it's it for me, it's it's also that workplace. If my workplace is in flow, you know, I always, I've always said like when I hire people, which is why I don't, that's why I have HR now because I can't hire people about it. I shouldn't also work with entry level employees and it's not good with it. But it's not like it's a workplace, it's a family workplace. So if I come in and you're in a bad mood and I could tell you're in a bad mood and I ask you why you're in a bad mood, if you tell me that there's nothing wrong, I'm willing to send you home. You can come back when you can tell me what's going on. I don't have, a, we don't have the energetic uh, uh, a surplus to, to help carry anybody that's not willing to do that work. And it doesn't mean that we don't have bad days and you don't get that day off right up. The boss will send you home and it's not going to be a thing. It's not going to be a mark on your record. But first, seriously, I don't want to work with you until you can tell me what's going on. Sounds like you're talking a little bit about EQ and positive intelligence also. Yeah, it's it's, it's critical, right? EQ and EQ. And EQ, yeah. I mean, they're, they're critical to it. And I think that like uh, those of us that have that awareness, like conscious, especially conscious employers, business owners, um, it's to me, it's, it's almost one of the like, I could, you know, I always say like, you don't have to be the smartest. If you got a work ethic, I'll work with you. Uh, you know, you, you don't have to outsmart me. Show up 20 minutes before me every day. Yeah, you got my respect. And I think that one of the most important things that I think we can we can teach to people, which is one of the hardest things to teach, is that EQ of, of reading a room, reading a room intelligently and with compassion. Right? It's not reading a room to figure out what pitch you need to say. It's reading the room to figure out how to get the most out of the room, which is a completely different way of looking at it. You know, how do I set this room on fire and in a positive way? And you know, for me, that's where like sacred hoops, a lot of those things come in. And that's but it, what I'm finding is the executives that are willing to because it's because it's a willingness right like it's it's the i'm gonna wake up and run every day that's a willingness the, the physical and mental benefits of that are huge but that's because you're making the decision to wake up run every day it's the same thing with microdose you're making a conscious decision to change the outcomes of your day and yes you're going to be a little bit more sensitive to stuff but you're also going to be more aware to someone who's not searching for awareness that gets tough someone who is searching for awareness this is the it's it's a big part of the answer now Private medicines aren't the only option. There's there's shamanic breath work. There's meditation. There's a lot of other ways that we found to get into those ecstatic states. But this is for me. It's this is what I found works very well for me. I still do yoga. I meditate every day. Um, it, there's a there's an intelligence that comes with a lot of these plants for me that I found that helps to benefit me and everyone that I've worked with. You know, our public company operates in seven states, and as a result of that, that was a hundred percent a result of an awareness that came from psychedelic medicines. Not because it was a concert, made a bunch of mushrooms, and the, the, the stage melted, but because <laughs> I was able to look at some of the shit that I had that blocked me that that made me ineffective as a leader and as a coworker, and, and was able to deal with that. That I was able to instill some of those EQ points on other people, and you know, saying this is how you encourage your people. It's not about holding them accountable. It's about encouraging. You know, I really appreciate that. Uh, there's a uh, author, and I'm, I can't think of his last name, but his first name is Shirzad. So if you were to Google Shirzad, and his book's called The Positive Intelligence Quotient, I believe. Um, and I did a, a study with John Marie Mudd from Canyon Ranch about that uh, for, for a few months. Um, and it's about EQ. 
And uh, there's a number of exercises you go through. And it's the, the mindset behind it is it's like muscles, training muscles. You don't go to the gym once and you're fit, right? You got to keep working the muscles. Same with the mind. And so there's certain exercises you do, tactile, rubbing your fingers together and some different things. Uh, putting, your, putting yourself in a mindful set so that when inevitably things happen that are high stress or whatever, that you're able to deal with it better. Deal with uh, employees or superiors or colleagues or family members or friends or whatever so you don't blow up. Um, and so so what you're saying really resonates with me. And And one of the things I really hope to inform others of beyond typical finance, which you can read books, you can watch podcasts, podcasts about, are all the other things that we're talking about to help people move more into flow. And so what are the other holistic things and little things that can be end up being big things that can make a real positive impact? And so I really appreciate what you're saying there. Um, well, there's a, one of the stats I read that I always loved was that the difference between a happy staff and a poor staff is 10% of your bottom line. Whether they're, they're, they're happy and killing it or they're sad and poor and they're just everything sucks, it's 10%. That's, I mean, and I, and I think that's the thing is all these things, like it's, that other stuff is quantifiable. It's easy for us to say that if I do this, the operating efficiencies improve, or if I do this and I add another sector or another product, here's, here's what that looks like from a revenue standpoint. These are the things that are the, the, the things that are typically in a standard company, not, they're, they're not quantifiable, but they are, they really are when you're aware of it. It's the culture piece, you know, it's the, you and I do a lot of work on us and like showing up so that we can be the best example of us to other people. But are we taking the time to quantify that into a culture for our business? Right. Because like one of the things we did was like pillars, cultural pillars for the company. And like I had a, I'm a moleskin guy. I like taking notes on everything. I have a shitty memory. So I write everything down. Everybody in the company, entry level or not, got a free moleskin when they started. If you filled it, didn't give a shit what it could be doodles. I don't care. Fill it, come back, show it to me. I'll give you another one. But every one of those had our cultural pillars in it because I want those same pillars of like happiness and kindness and like be the best you. Like the cheesy things that we all say every day are real things. They're cheesy so we can remember them. Do not be afraid to take the work that you're doing every day. It's one of the things I really admire about you, sir, is that it, it's being open about the work that we're doing. If I'm not open with it, I can't inspire anybody else. It's just my little journey. The second that I'm willing to be vulnerable and share that I'm doing work on me because I'm not perfect. And these are the things that I'm working on. This is what I'm doing and why we can inspire the people. Like you do that all the time. It's one of the things I really, really like honor you for. And that's what this is all about. It's just, it's, it's those, it's the, the other things. Yeah. Right on. Appreciate that. Yeah, dude. It's real. Um, so as you check in where you are now in your life, kind of take status of your body of work, tell me, a little bit about as you reflect back over your body of work and the impact you've made, what are some of your highlights and th some of the things you're most proud of? Man, it's got to be staff. Um, I would say a couple of things. You know, one, having a, a business that lives beyond me. You know, it's uh, uh, the day that you decide to leave a company you started. It's a it's a weird feeling, um, you know, but I, I can quantify it to everyone wants the best from their kids and the best you can hope for. Someone loves them as much as you did. And, you know, so, so watching a company live beyond me is very cool, but I would say that like my biggest victories are the staff, dude, it, it, hands down. Like I've got so many stories. I, you know, one of our first employees, um, it, it, we had a little struggle with alcohol, um, stuck with him, 
And um, he's still with us today. I uh, sold one of my cars, had a breathalyzer in it. Um, I remember the day I walked into the facility and he told me that he had a year sober and that he was going to buy, he was trading in a car that I'd sold him for a new car. He was the first person in his family to get his own place. He lived with his grandparents and his mother and his, he had a special needs uh, sibling he took care of. He got his own place and helped them support themselves. And like, it's just things like that. Like, cause you know, cause like I've had some, cool, you know, I've had great parties. I've had good stuff. I've got a great car. I have a good house. Like I, I've had those things, but like at the end of the day, like I've never had a house that I sat and I thought about all the time, no matter how cool it was, that, that was so short lived, but like that happened to me years ago. And I can still remember the look on his face when he told me that, you know, the, the people like my, my old assistant, she's the head of HR for a publicly trained company. She's making six figures a year and she's marrying another guy who makes six figures a year who loves her. Like he's never loved anyone on this planet. Being able to facilitate those things because I'm open about like who I am and what my struggles are and I'm a human with my people, those are like the biggest victories. You know, I'm proud of what I've accomplished. I never thought, you know, I always tell people like it's do not look at my story because if you add one plus one, it does not equal the outcome. Like it's 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 so different, but it's just that like do don't give up. It's gonna be hard. If it if it was easy, it would be fun. That's my thing. But like the only reason I'm here is because I didn't give up. I tried to be a good dude. No one's lack of integrity has ever cost us mine. None. It's never happened. You could be a dirtbag. You can rip us off. You can do that. There's so much more money to be made by doing good business with me. That rip me off all you want. And th there's an extra comma in there if you had. You know, and so I would say that, like, that's probably the, 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 my biggest home runs are the people that I've been able to affect because I wasn't a dick. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Well, I, I know that about you, and that's really cool. It's a great way of being and a great way to live your life. Um, well, I just really want to thank you. I'm grateful that you took the time to come by and, and hang with us today and, and chat. And uh, thank you all for listening. Um, really appreciate you guys tuning in. And uh, I hope that you were all inspired and informed. And uh, if you like what you, you heard, whatever channel you're listening on, go ahead and really appreciate it if you would review and uh and rate us a little bit and uh, otherwise thanks for tuning in and uh, go a little closer into your financial flow take care this was the financial flow podcast with me darren wright thank you for listening and i hope that today you were inspired and informed to move even more into your peak financial flow for success